Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In the truth of movies this time, Paddington 2, Too Much to Bear. We give Paul King's sequel our darkest perusal and hail the most impressive bear performance since Fassbender in Shame. The Florida Project, Sean Baker's candy-coloured chronicle of a Florida family in freefall, finally makes UK cinemas and gets a thumbs up. And, 78 years old but still with plenty to say, Jimmy Stewart tries to drain the swamp in Frank Capra's classic Mr Smith Goes to Washington, this week's film club. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello everybody, and hello in particular to Sophie Monks-Kaufman. Hello. Hi there, you're looking uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, Sophie. That's an illusion. Oh, right, but I thought it might be because you were excited about this week's releases, which are both really oh, great. Oh, I, I am, like, this is a blinder of a week. It's Good insane. Week. Yeah, astonished by the calibre of both of our choices. Excellent. And Adam Woodward's here as well. Hello. Beneath that cool demeanour, equally twinkly-eyed about the cinematic treats uh, we're about to recommend you. If you'd like to get in touch, as you know, you can via email, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Twitter is at LWLies. There is also the Little White Lies a homepage which has a podcast section. Very few people going there to comment so far. Get along there, because it feels a little bit lonely. Now, Neil has written in. He says, Dear Jimbo and the gang, as it was Halloween, I finally convinced my partner to watch Australian horror The Babadook, which has been on my list for a while. I wasn't disappointed. Perfectly paced psychological horror. Highly recommended as viewing for Halloween or any other occasion. Perhaps one for film club. Uh, we've done our annual scary film, and we had well, yeah, but the Babadook, I think, transcends the genre in a, Does to it? a certain extent. So it'd be good to revisit that, and maybe we can keep it in the bank for next year. But all right, or you know, possibly before. I just hate scary films. Uh, yeah, it is. It's a very creepy film. Right. But the real, the real horror from it comes from the psychological aspect of the of the plot. Yeah. Right. How do you feel about explorations of grief? Fine. Is that a big thing of the Babadook? It's a read. Right. An available read. Yeah. It's a read. Okay. Are there two Babadook films now? Have they made a sequel, Sophie? No. No. Okay. I hope they never do. I'd, really? Is it is bizarre. it that scary? No, it's just it wouldn't it doesn't lend itself to okay. a franchise. And it has a perfect ending. Like a perfectly complete ending. Well one sequel that does seem like a pretty good idea is of course Paddington Two, which we're going to talk about next. Paddington Two sees the Peruvian bear now happily settled with the Brown family and a popular member of the local community in West London. But when he decides 
to try and buy an antique book from Mr Gruber's shop for his Aunt Lucy's birthday, he finds himself caught up in his biggest adventure yet and making a whole load of new friends. In the past month, these three shadowy individuals have all been seen snooping around three London landmarks. Oh. We think the thief you saw is part of a criminal gang, using the pop-up book as a treasure map. Well, it's a theory. Have you found out who they are? Not yet, dearie. Maybe I should take a look. I'm sorry, this is a private conversation. Oh, it's all right, Mr Brown. This is my friend, Knuckles. Go here. And this is Fibs. G'day. Spoon. Hello. Jimmy the Snitch. All right. T-Bone. Watch out. The Professor. Hope. Squeaky Pete. Hello. Double Bass Bob. Hello. Farmer Jack. Okay. Mad Dog. Oof. Johnny Cashpoint. Ka-ching. Sir Geoffrey Wilcott. I hope I can rely on your vote. And Charlie Rumble. <sighs> it's so wonderful to meet you all. <laughs> I must say it's a great relief to know that Paddington's already made such sweet friends. <laughs> Adam, you met with Paul King last week. I did, in fact, yeah, in, in this very studio. Right, and he must be a lovely man. I'd never met him before, and I didn't know quite what to expect. I don't even think I'd seen a picture of him before, actually. And he turned up, and he he was a lovely, very uh, softly spoken, relaxed kind of guy. He actually seems like he could be in, in the world of Paddington. Right. He belongs in that world, I think. Does he sound like Paddington? Well, we'll hear a clip from him in a minute. Excellent. Um, I asked him uh, with with some apprehension about the approach uh, him and Simon Farnaby, who co-wrote the script, how they approached this being a sequel. I loved the first Paddington. I think a lot of people did. Kind of came out of nowhere, the the first one in in a a lot of ways. But with this one, you're always worried about how they're going to repeat the trick. So I posed that question to him. Mm. All right. Well, should we hear what he had to say? Yeah. Sequels can be notoriously difficult to nail. I think we've we described this in, in our review as like the Godfather 2 of uh, quasi-animated family capers. <laughs> it's I, a pretty I, nice rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to have to pause and blush. Yeah, you can let that one sink Thank in. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be in the bath feeling pleased with myself. <laughs> what was your sort of, I guess, your and Simon's remit with this one? I mean, we did look at other sequels and there's not a whole host of second films that don't feel like slightly diminishing returns. I mean, there's some jolly good ones, but generally I prefer the first album sort of thing. And it is that tricky second album syndrome. The one that we felt was very successful in our genre. I mean, obviously, The Godfather 2 is is very good, but not desperately useful as a touchstone for (laughs) any talking animal material at all. Although, you know, Paddington does use a towel, I suppose, (laughs) just not as a silencer. The one that seemed to work well for us was Toy Story 2 because Mm. it didn't try to reset the character. And I think that's always the kind of... You're sort of stuck between wanting to tell the next chapter of your story, but your character quite often is a sort of a damaged hero who is is healed by the end of the film. You know, you sort of take, a, I don't know, Die Hard or something, and you go, well, he gets back together with his wife because mm. he's overcome the issues in defeating the terrorists. And, you know, and so it's quite hard to then engineer them to be apart again at the beginning of the second film without going, oh, I thought we'd mm. sort of solved that problem. And so we sort of very much wanted to avoid that pitfall. So Paddington making his home with the Browns, we really didn't want to tear that apart. We didn't want to sort of go, well, Hugh Monimill's character has now gone off Paddington and he's back to being fusty and annoying because it would have just felt like the whole first film was a waste of time. Uh, and Toy Story 2, like I was saying, did a very good job of, um, of of being an organic next step for that character. You know, that you sort of go, Woody's gone from being worried about being number one in Andy's eyes to kind of worrying that he's going to be abandoned by Andy, uh, you know, like children leave home, you know. And, and, and it felt like a very good next step. And I think at the end of Paddington 1, there's this scene where he's sort of having a snowball fight with the family and it's this sort of 
hopefully an evocation of sort of happy, you know, belonging. And uh, I remember when we were filming it, we were in this lovely street and we sort of filled it with snow, as you do for the movies. And um, I remember just feeling the frame was a little bit empty that you go, you've got Paddington, you've got these five people. But I, I really wish there were sort of 20 or 30 people. That felt like the number of sort of people you would want filling the frame. But then you go, well, who are these people? Who are the mm. neighbours? We haven't really met them. And so from there, it felt quite natural for it to be a community story to go, well, yeah, you found a family, but we all, if we're lucky, start with a family life and we have to go out into the world, you know, even if it's just a school for the first time. And so it felt like it could be something quite universal about going out into the big wide world and mm. and uh, trying to hold on to ourselves. Paul King. Well, he has every reason to feel pleased with himself in the bath after this, this film. Magnificent. Um, and it's interesting that he references... Toy Story 2, because watching this, I was trying to think of which other films have pulled off that incredible balancing act between being incredibly sweet-natured and also really, really en enjoyable without ever getting, say, saccharine. And Pixar at its best, I mean, Ratatouille, there are strong echoes of that here. And I think oh, Aardman Animations as well. I thought it was a fantastic film, Sophie. I was in raptures. I came to my screening of Paddington 2, uh, which incidentally was primarily for children, so there were lots of sweeties put out, which I availed myself of. But I came to it and I was in a pretty downbeat place. And watching it, I think I might have muttered to myself at some point, this is a dream. I just felt all the feelings that had been suppressed for like the previous week erupting inside me. Like I was laughing, it's so comically constructed, it's got such a great heart, such pathos. You know, there's real tension because, like, he's such a vulnerable character. I mean, he's pint-sized, you know, like, as uh, someone says to him at some point, you know, I'm worried that a little bear like you might get trampled underfoot, so you feel very protective of him. So I just felt entertained, I felt moved, I just felt so many feelings. I just was, I was just really, I took a moment while watching the film just to pinch myself, just to feel grateful that such an experience could exist, could be put onto the screen and could be geared not just like a, at a niche cinema audience, but at everyone. I really believe it's mm. like a film that is accessible to everyone. And it's just amazing that a film directed so broadly could also be of such high quality. You know, right. it's not like dumbing anything down to reach people. It, it's the opposite. And I just think you're incredibly privileged to live in a world in which Paddington 2 exists. Excellent. Very nicely put, Sophie. And you're right about the, the reach across the demographic because I, I insisted on taking a 16-year-old with me who wasn't at first best pleased by the notion but enjoyed it pretty much every bit as much as I did, although we might not have reached quite the same levels that, that you did, but still, absolutely five-star stuff. Adam? Yeah, I, w I was in quite a downbeat place as well going in, but mostly because I was incredibly hungover on a Saturday morning. So my guard was down a little bit, um, which is my excuse for bawling my eyes out from most of the film. In fact, I won't, I won't give it away here, but the, the very last scene, I actually had to ask my girlfriend after the screening like what the final words that Paddington says are because I was in such a state that I couldn't actually hear what he was saying at the time. It is quite hard to keep a dry eye through this film. Yeah, and, and you know, it's not that it's particularly sad. It's quite a, a hopeful and life-affirming film. Mm. Very much um, so. And I think my yeah, outpouring of emotion. I must say, there was so many times in the film where I was like laughing out loud as well. The humour is, is very British. There's a lot of visual gags. It's essentially referencing a, a sort of traditional style of British comedy, I think, which mm. you, don't, you don't really see as much of anymore. Right. But I think there are things that are beyond British. I mentioned the, the Pixar thing, so... Uh, influences perhaps of Ratatouille. There's also one sequence which was caused to mind very strongly Back to the Future. Mm. You know, a lot of other things that you've seen 
explored in, in, in other films as well. Having said that, though, I, the film is marked throughout by a kind of visual inventiveness from Paul King. One particular scene where they kind of journey through the pop-up book, <gasps> which is just magnificent. I gasped, James. I gasped at that scene. And yeah, it is British, but also like this might be a reach, but in the like pure physical construction of the comedy, I was reminded of the French master Jacques Tati. Mm. And there's also a definite giant nod to Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, right. which also sees its like well-mannered hero ending up in clink and befriending the tough exterior men inside by charm alone. So yeah, I, I saw a, lo- a lot of references beyond our tiny aisle. So... In terms of, I mean, Paul King does a fantastic job with the script as well as excellent. Paul King of Simon Farnaby, mm. who recently we saw in, in Mindhorn. And they worked on a film together called Bunny and the Bull. Some is that years any good? Ago. It is quite good. It's very much, it's in a similar vein in terms of the creativeness, the inventiveness of it. There's a lot of hand-built props and sets which mm. they which they use. And yeah, it's a, it's a charming film. It's a bit more similar to The Mighty Boosh, which Paul King actually directed as well. Oh, did he? Yeah, but okay. that was kind of a, one of his earlier gigs. And right. It feels a bit more similar to that in terms of it's slightly more adult-pitched, but... The other screenwriter credit here goes to Michael Bond, who, of course, created the Paddington books, which which these films have have come from, and who, who who passed away sadly on the penultimate day of filming of this sequel. And this film is is dedicated to him. A word or two about the the cast: Hugh Grant. What a delight it is to see him at his best back in on the big screen. Yeah, so Hugh Grant plays the sort of villain in this film, and, and I think he's the reason that it elevates it above maybe the first one because in that film Nicole Kidman does a, does a good enough job I think as the villain but maybe it, the character is a bit more one dimensional and, and doesn't have as big a part to play and you get a lot of Hugh Grant in this film and he's very very funny he's at that point now where he's he's quite self-deprecating in this role and you know you go in with prior knowledge of Hugh Grant as an actor and, and a kind of personality and just the way he sets about subverting that and and also yeah quite affectionately skewering the idea of the kind of British thesp actor as well is very very funny well I would say that Nicole Kidman's performance is a sliver of ice and Hugh Grant's performance is a hearty hunk of ham um, exactly but he's just he like the script is so funny in the way he delivers it like I wrote down one of my favorite lines because it's also like over the top thesp And there's a point where he's being asked to give evidence in a courtroom and he says, may my entrails be plucked and me dragged around by my neck if I deceive. And he just, he pulls off these incredibly flowery lines with these very sort of like sincere for what the tone of the lines are type of delivery. He's just so self-aware of the type of presence that he has on screen. Like, he knows he's seen as, like, a sort of posh thesp, and mm-hmm. he just, like, subverts that and has so much fun with it. Mm-hmm. And he, he does multiple disguises. And uh, I think David, in our review, compares him to sort of Vincent Price. He's someone who's kind of known for his light, amiable roles. And here he just, like, really layers it on. I think just looking more broadly at the cast as mm-hmm. well, there's a lot of actors in here. Someone like Sally Hawkins I, I really like. But there's other people like Hugh Bonneville. I don't know that I've seen him in much else and he's not someone that, you know, I have a kind of sense of. But he's just so perfectly cast in this film as as the father and um, the whole family unit just feels so authentic. And I, I was excited about this film in terms of being able to spend more time with the character of Paddington. But mm. actually... 
I didn't realise how much I loved the rest of the cast as well. What about Ben? Is it Wishaw or Wyshaw? Ben Wishaw, yeah. He, right. Again, it's hard to imagine anyone else doing that voice now. It's remarkable to think that when Paddington was initially being drawn up, I think Colin Firth was in line to play really? Paddington, yeah, which is a strange idea now to have. Although, from what Paul King is perhaps going to tell us later on with his film club selection, what, what is essentially looking for here is the kind of James Stewart role mm. in as much as if he was inspired or I, th- I think that's what he, he'll be talking about later on. Paddington occupies a similar role in this exposing Ill- wrongdoing and uh, an innocent fighting I think, against injustice. Yeah and I think the reason Ben Wishaw works so well is he, is he does have this soft uh, gentle approach to the character to voicing the character and essentially Paddington is a surrogate for a child mm. uh, in the Brown family and they, they adopt him into their clan and you know you you view the world of the film very much through this character's eyes and you know da- right down to the, the depiction of London as this you know slightly rose tinted chocolate box world which I you know it made me very nostalgic for a sort of London that I've never visited and I'm not even sure it ever really existed it's West but, London that's what well, it is well yeah. exactly yeah but the fact that you are viewing it through this character's eyes it, it seems like this is the kind of London that children are taught about or the kind of vision of London that they have and same with like the prison scenes as well you know that's probably what prison looks like to a child mm. Adam can I ask what aspect of it got you welling up there were several scenes. I mean, you know, the, a lot of the stuff with, with Aunt Lucy, um, who pops up in the story, story, but the picture book scene, which you mentioned, mm. I thought that was just beautifully done. The ending especially, I mean, it earns its payoff um, so beautifully, this film. I think one thing that Paul King's so good at is, it sounds like such an obvious thing to do as a director, but he sets things up really early in terms of character attributes and... Even things like what hobbies the kids have, you know, mm. and it always he always comes back to it. There's always like a function for everything. Mm. There's nothing in there that's just like there, you know, and then just sort of discarded. Um, and it's it seems as I say, it seems like such a simple idea to do that. And but so many directors don't do that. It requires a lot of indulgence, I think, in some places, but it, it more than does enough to earn your goodwill I think throughout well it's just so well crafted I'd say it's not indulgent because for me indulgence is when you dwell on an emotion or you try and milk it I I think this just moves at such a satisfying pace and is constructed along certain beats that just carry you along with it and there are no dud characters so it's it's yeah it's it's a film about community values and Mm. believing in people and people looking after each other and it it earns that like what could sound like a sort of sentimental message by just having in each of those ensemble characters a really charming performance and it's just rare to be able to feel something so big and warm without feeling like you are being sentimental so it's like it's a very smart film in service of a very beautiful message are you giving it fives across the board Sophie well I think I'll, I'll give it anticipation for but then, yeah, 5-5. Five, five. Right. Adam? Yeah, I, I mirror those scores, I think. Right. And I was trying to place a finger on what it is that I love so much about this character in, in particular and, and this story. And I think it's a, it's a factor of um, Michael Bond's book as well. But it's just that the way that everyone treats Paddington and just accepts him for being a, a talking bear in the film. Like, there's no... People are surprised, maybe, that he that he's there, but no one questions the fact that he's, like, a talking bear. Mm. Everyone just accepts that. And I think that makes... The film wouldn't work without that, basically. Right, absolutely. OK, yeah, I'm giving it five as well. It's interesting, actually, that the whole bear business and its role within, kind of, 
children's culture. Winnie the Pooh, we also saw referenced on the big screen recently in Goodbye, Christopher Robin. And you were asking, what's happened to Rupert Bear? Where's his reboot? He's overdue one, isn't he? I, I think. don't think he is, though. I don't, is he not? I don't think he is. In my mind, and I was never a big Rupert fan, he's Ian Blyton's creation, yeah. of course. And I think he comes with some fairly dark overtones of the times in which he was created. Doesn't he, the character wear trousers? He very much has <laughs> flannel kind of checkered trousers. That's quite wrong, I think. Yeah, and a scarf. Okay, so let's dissect this. Why is a duffel coat more acceptable in a bear than trousers? It's more, you know, Winnie the Pooh has his little red T-shirt. Mm. And then he's nude from the waist down. And he's nude yeah. from the waist down. Paddington is nude from the waist down. I think there's a the misconception that he should wear these little wellies which actually were only added to the character later so oh, that really? they could sell toys and have them standing You're up kidding. on the shelves. No, apparently. Right. Interesting. R- Rupert I think, Bear being I think fully trousers, it, is, it's what's implied by what they're covering now, and that kind of, there shouldn't be that intersection, that, that re- repression of a, do you know what I mean? A bear should be free? I think a bear should be free, and Rupert clearly isn't. He's, he's in, in, in drawers. Well, in Paddington, it get, yeah, they do dress him up to, I guess, make him feel like more part of the family. In fact, mm. I think in the first film, it's on. It's like his request that he wants to wear this duffel coat and the hat is obviously um, handed down from... Uncle uh, Pastuzo. Uh, yeah, Uncle Pastuzo inherits it from an explorer that we meet in the first film. And and so it just feels very natural extension of the character. It's not like they're trying to dress him up to be anything right. else. And On a less happy note, Sophie, you were pointing out that this film was originally going to be released by the Weinstein Company, who've been in the news a little bit, but that Heyday Films, the production company in this country, have, have cut all ties with them. Yes, a source from Heyday Film, an unnamed source. They gave this reason, which I think is worth reading out. It is deeply frustrating that a film made with such love and care and a character of such positive and generous spirit might in some way be tarnished with the brush of these horrific, wholly unacceptable acts. And of course, this is a reference to the fact that Weinstein, um, Asia Argento, who's one of the women who has accused Harvey Weinstein of rape, has kept a G-Doc, which she's tweeting out, and it's updated with a list of all the women who've accused him. And at the current moment, 100-plus women have accused him of sexual assault, and 18 have accused him of rape. And this is antithetical to everything that Paddington stands for. So they have cut ties with the Weinstein Company and they're looking for a new distributor in North America. And just while we're in this dark anti-Paddington 2 spirit Hmm. phase of the podcast, it's worth flagging that the plot thickens and darkens and becomes more sinister. Ronan Farrow, who wrote an early piece in the New Yorker uh, and has since written another two pieces, uh, his latest one is called Harvey Weinstein's Army of Spies and it goes deep into the fact that he, in um, autumn 2016, he enlisted the help of various personal intelligence gathering agencies, including one called Black Cube, which is run largely by former Mossad officers and Mossad is Israel's national intelligence gathering service. So he enlisted (laughs) these effectively... Uh, national spies to gather information about the women who were going to accuse him, who were going to come forward and accuse him, and also about the journalists who were uh, looking into his case. And so he just basically began extending his dark tentacles in an mm. attempt to shut down the story that was... It's, it's an amazing piece. That's in The New Yorker at the moment. Yeah, that's yeah. in The New Yorker. And it's hard to imagine that this is real. It's like it's mm. like he comes across like a comic book villain, like very much like a, you know, or like a, just basically an evil character who would exist in a thriller movie and seem like an overly dramatic concoction. Like the extent of this man's arrogance and 
belief in his nefarious powers to believe that he could shut down people who would rightfully want to talk out. Anyway, it's well worth it a read and it's it's in the New Yorker and it's called Harvey Weinstein's Army of Spies. Right. Uh, Paddington 2, looking for a distributor in the States, the fact that it was, I think, was it the highest grossing independent animation of all time, the first one? It was a massive hit. Yeah, yeah. yeah so... Fingers crossed that it's, it's going to be put in a position to repeat or even improve on that success. All right. Next up, we're going to move on to another of the week's releases, and it's The Florida Project. Made for $2 million, which is a big budget for Sean Baker, this freewheeling film follows a summer in the life of six-year-old Mooney, who's played by the remarkable Brooklyn Prince, uh, her mother and her friends who are all living in the shadow of Disney World, which is kind of down the freeway, and, and their life takes place on the hard shoulder of the road there almost. And here's an example of what Mooney and her friends get up to. And this is where we get free ice cream. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Follow me. Could we have some okay. money? Do we have enough? Excuse me? Wait. Excuse me, miss. Could you give us some change, please? We need yes. to buy ice cream. Because we don't have any money, we just have five cents. Yeah, we just have five cents. And the doctor said we have asthma and we gotta eat ice cream yeah. right away. Like, yeah, my doctor ice cream. Guys. We're not lying. It's fine. Thank you very much. Here you go. Let's go. Come on. Adam, you saw this before me and you said, but from the opening scene, you know. Yeah, sometimes you, you just get that with a film and I think it opens with a beautiful introduction to the kid characters and they're sort of just like screaming at each other basically and, and it's very bright and colourful and loud and within honestly within like the first 10 seconds I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to love this film. Mm. It is a lovely opening. I struggled initially with this film because the parenting is so awful and that made me bristle but soon I found that I'd been won over by just the naturalness the freedom the the, the life and, and the extraordinary performance as well by Mooney and the other kids it's I, I don't know was, was there a script did Sean just get them to go out and just be it certainly does feel very spontaneous a lot of especially when you're following the kids around because their their days are just spent meeting up and being very mischievous basically mm. uh, in this block of apartments and there's not a lot in terms of plot or in terms of what happens in this film. There are sort of threads of, of storyline which do sort of come together and you have Willem Dafoe who plays the, um, I guess, the manager of the apartments and he, he's kind of lo- looks over everyone. He's, he's, a, he's sort of like a father figure mm. slightly to the kids and yeah, he brings a lot of warmth and soul into, into the film, I think. Yeah, and I think his, his role and his performance is, is, is fantastic, by the way. Nice to see him not playing a psychopathic killer or similar <laughs> But as you say, he brings warmth in, a, in an environment which is almost entirely oblivious and not desperately bothered about the freefall that this... You know, the fact that this family are basically heading towards impact with reality in, in the worst way. I mean, the, the message of the film almost seems to be life goes on both in, in a good way and a bad. It's almost oblivious to okay, the problems. I, I desperately need to interrogate your comment. Obviously, you're the only parent at this table, but I do think it's a value judgment to say that Hallie is an awful parent. I don't think cinema is there to give you a, like a master plan or a blueprint for living. No, for sure. I think it's there to enable you to empathise with the sort of characters you might not be able to get along with in real life. And this yeah. is a very humane and warm portrait of a, of a, like, a very tragic woman who... Her tragedy is that her heart is in the right place, but the way that she approaches people is just so combustible that she just can't seem to find a place for herself. Okay, but see, 
I started off struggling with it because it is quite extreme the way that she behaves and by consequence by the way that her daughter behaves in the opening scenes of the film. It's not a normal way for a six-year-old to behave or to be left alone to behave. However, I found myself won over massively by the film. I want to see it again. I want to re-enter that world um, you know, really as soon as possible because it, it is a very, very winning performance. I personally never warmed to the mother. I agree that it, it is tragic that she can't resolve her issues, but she seems to be somebody who reacts to problems of her own creation by being aggressive with everybody else and uh, you know, almost living in denial, wishing to place the blame. I don't want to get too deep into this, but I found it very difficult to find anything positive about her at all. I'm not saying that she has to be a positive character, but uh, it, it just is a fact. I still thought the film was absolutely terrific. And um, yeah, after my own kind of parental issue at the start. I would say that I think to an extent I read her behaviour as being symptomatic of her economic situation and I was thinking you know Mooney is she does try to give her a childhood and shelter her from everything else that's happening and that doesn't always that isn't always the case often that spills over Mm. and Mooney does have these like hard doses of reality but I did feel like the character of Mooney you know you wonder whether she will grow up to be like her mother you know that was part of my takeaway from it was that people in these situations often aren't able to make more of their lot because it's, you know, they're almost like past the point of being able to like do anything to better that. Yeah, well, so what do you do when you have no future? You live in the glorious moment and the way everything about the way the film is shot and constructed is all about creating these incredibly energised, like euphoric moments, Mm. you know, from the colours to the childhood sparkle. It's like, it's kind of like, it's like a very special cinematic language that is very, very enervating. And the reason the film is so powerful is it kind of switches between this like candy floss high, child's eye scampering around view of the world to these these shots of reality and it, like the fact that it can get those two tones and that it plays with them and the ending is a perfect coalescence of these two different tones and realities that we're given. The ending in particular, which I won't give anything, any details away about, but it was a film of like moments and, and incidents. And I don't think there is much of a kind of narrative then in the traditional sense or conventional sense, but I was watching it thinking, you know, I'm enjoying what's happening, but I was wondering like, where's this film going? Like, mm. what's the kind of, what's going to be the, 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 the kind of punch at the end here? And for a while I was thinking it's not going to arrive and it's just going to, a film which just will sort of end. And the final scene is just a complete sucker punch and a wonderful, wonderful metaphor for America, I think. Mm. Um, these Basically, these two young characters just subconsciously responding to something in that way is... is... Well, the, the film is called The Florida Project, which I must admit, I was curious about the title. And apparently that's what the whole Disneyland construction was originally cool when it was at the planning stage, the Florida project, which has a kind of vaguely ominous. Yeah. The elephant in the room in this film is Disneyland or Disney World, which mm. is just down the road and you you see all the kind of Disney outlet stores, the helicopters, the tourism around it. And you, but this is very much on the fringes of it. But Sophie, as you were saying, it's also another fantasy world that's being inhabited by Mooney and her friends, enabled to a large degree by her mother. Although I would say that a lot of her magic summer, and it is a very magic summer, is purely of her own invention because she's a six-year-old who's who's wandering around the streets with her friends with no parental supervision for for much of the, the of the film. It is a film of amazing contrast, no question. The innocence, but also the incredible precociousness of of the kids, of their language, of their cussing, of of some of the 
adult situations they're exposed to. You know, you, you talked about Disney World being the... It's like they live in the shadow of it, basically. And it is this motif or, or metaphor for America in itself. And living on the fringes of that is a weird kind of existence, right? Because they, they're not really, like, privy to that world of... I'm assuming it's, like, quite a privileged place to go, right? And it's and I, uh, something that young families and, and people aspire to. And they're sort of kept away from that. And I like some of the small touches. Like there's a scene where Willem Dafoe is just painting the apartment and it's really quite garish shade of pink. And I wondered afterwards to what extent is that for the benefit of the residents or for the benefit of the tourists who have to drive down the highway and see this apartment block and be reminded of the of the economic divide the colour scheme and... of the film by the way I, mean, I, I'm not, I don't know if I would call it garish it's just a, a joy candy coloured is, is... Yeah. yeah and to pick up on your point about the contrast between the magical opulence of Disney World and the motel they have this funny sequence at the beginning because it's called the Magic Kingdom mm. where Mooney and her mother reside and confused tourists rock up there thinking they're going to get the grand experience and instead they get... They've booked the wrong Magic Kingdom. Yeah, and that's like a funny and light way of illustrating yeah. the gulf between the two places. And that's played like it's a regular occurrence, right, right as exactly. well. They, they, there's like almost like a protocol that they follow that <laughs> exactly. how to deal with this couple. and Yeah, yeah and that's its strength. It, it's like the view of the film and the way the characters operate are aligned and the, the vitality of the film is like the vitality of the characters and it's this, it's this real harmony between the visuals of the film and the characters and it, it's just symphonious mm. I would say mm. alright looks fantastic and I mean it really does look fantastic oh, yeah. it's gorgeous what numbers do you want to give it Sophie I enjoyed Sean Baker's previous movie Tangerine so I would learn a four coming in it was a five for enjoyment it was my favourite film that I saw in Cannes this year and I honestly felt this exciting feeling while watching it like I was discovering a new way of making films because the way he constructs the world is not every day it's just so much more vibrant and youthful so five for enjoyment and then in retrospect five okay yeah I, I can't disagree with that actually and it's interesting that Sean Baker's been making films for quite a while now but his last two he really seems to be hitting his stride and it's exciting to kind of see a director just operating it seems on like another plane from what mm. we're maybe used to and the budget again like two million dollars tangerine famously was done on iphones mm. this one he's actually bust out the 35 mil for apart from one sequence yes yes all right excellent i'll give it a three for anticipation four at the time building to a five right after this we'll be talking about paul king's film club recommendation it is mr smith goes to washington Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right, released on the 19th of October 1939, almost 80 years ago. This, of course, is the story of a plain-speaking scout leader, played by James Stewart, who is sent to Washington to be the stooge of corrupt politicians. Only things don't turn out the way they expected. But you knew that because you've seen this as part of Film Club. It was Paul King's recommendation. Let's hear why. Well, I've chosen it because it's one of my favourite films. It's Frank Capra's sort of last great pre-war movie and uh, sort of follows hot on the heels of Mr. D Goes to Town and Meet John Doe as one of those films where the sort of little innocent goes to the big city and his uh, sort of small town values of kindness and decency are sort of tested by a big cynical world. And it was one of the main inspirations for Paddington 2, which does the same sort of thing architecturally. It takes a, a small innocent bear with uh, good homespun philosophy that he's learnt from his Aunt Lucy and sticks him in a, a bigger, meaner world than the first film and, and we see how those values thrive or, or die. I think Mr Smith Goes to Washington is, is also one of James Stewart's great performances and he's surrounded by this sort of company of Capra regulars with Gene Arthur and Edward Arnold and it's incredibly funny. It's incredibly moving. It also shows some of Capra's great sort of visual tricks which I, I'm always a fan of. A lot's sort of made of the dialogue and the and the philosophy of his films, and obviously It's a Wonderful Life is sort of this perennial classic, but mm. I think he's also a great visual filmmaker, and there's a lovely scene in it where um, Jeff Smith, uh, James Stewart's character, is flirting with uh, Senator Payne's daughter, and it's all told in a sort of close-up of his hat as he sort of fumbles with, a, with his hat and sort of acts very nervously, and you go, there's not so many filmmakers these days who would sort of, you know, follow a minute of dialogue exclusively on the hands and hat of one of the main characters, and it's so funny, and it's... It's just very charming, and uh, I think a lot of what he did is truly revolutionary and wonderful. Excellent. What did listeners make of Mr Smith Goes to Washington? We got a, a handful of comments. Richard Ashby describes it as an excellent film and points at the filibuster scene as being outstanding. Mm. Um, Joanna Busa says, It's my comfort film whenever the world screws up. And Film Debate on the Facebook just said it's a classic. There you go. Sophie, would you agree? Classic. Let's define classic. What does classic even mean? Um, a film which kind of sets a standard. Its properties are timeless. I would say this is a kind of offbeat classic. For me, a classic is something that is just a little more distilled in terms of the story. Do you mean shorter? Yeah, I mean, maybe short. This is two hours, nine minutes. But it, I think it's, it's like quite a finickety little film. So I wouldn't call it a classic, but others are free to do so. I would say it's stirring and good-hearted, and I can definitely see how 
Little Paddington and um, Jimmy Stewart. And every time I see Jimmy Stewart performing, I'm like, I'm so surprised he's a Republican. But um, <laughs> I can see, I can see how the two characters speak to each other. Right. Definitely, Abe Lincoln was a Republican, of course. I know it's yeah. I mean, uh, maybe I need to reevaluate my uh, judgment well, of Republicans. Maybe they've changed. The extraordinary, the historical impact of this film released. Uh, just after war had broken out in Europe, of course, the film was banned in Nazi Germany, in fascist Italy, Soviet Russia, and Franco Spain. And apparently, it was also dubbed in some countries to kind of alter the message of the film so it conformed with the official ideology. Because the reason it was banned, the dangerous notions of democracy it contained. Mm. But equally, Joseph P. Kennedy, who was what President Kennedy's father, considered it such a dangerous film for America's image abroad because of the scenes of corruption at the heart of government that he actually sent uh, Harry Cohn, who's one of the producers a telegram urging him to withdraw the film. I feel that to show this in foreign countries will do inestimable harm to American prestige all over the world. Ooh, and one last one. In 1942, when German-occupied France banned the showing of American films, many cinemas chose this as the last movie that they played before the ban went into effect. How about that? How about that? Yeah, Capra is an interesting one as well because he obviously went off off the back of this into the war and um, made a lot of films during that time. There's a wonderful documentary actually on Netflix called Five Came Back and an accompanying book which are well worth reading. It's about how these five great Hollywood directors at the time basically went off and and kind of made war propaganda films for America and um, then he returned and made It's Wonderful Life. So, yeah. Not, right. bad, not a bad run. Did you like this one, Adam? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a little while since I'd seen it, and I think I'd actually seen it. It's, it's, compared to something like a, It's Wonderful Life, it doesn't get reruns that often on, on television, and I'm not quite sure why. I, I agree it's maybe not a classic in the more conventional sense, but it's certainly got a timeless quality to it and mm. a universality to it as well. Well, the um, David versus Goliath and the, the idealist standing up to the corrupt, juggernauts at the heart of power that's all very universal yeah doesn't seem to have changed that much in the world today no. um, and the idea also of political forces controlling their own news outlets and essentially dictating the agenda i think mm. is it that's one thing that struck me just how little it's changed or how similar the situation seems to be mm. in many ways now all right excellent well it was fascinating uh, to look back on that film and always enjoyable to watch james stewart and note actually the resemblance which uh, the young nicholas cage as to Jimmy Stewart. What do you think? Yeah, there I were moments in this film when... Uh, what era of Cage are we talking? Oh, young. Ah. Young. Inland Empire. No, not Inland Empire. Wild, Wild at Heart. Heart. Wild, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or Raising Arizona, actually. Mm. Oh, yeah, Raising Arizona. When there's also that all shucks delivery mm. uh, that he's using, which is kind of Stewart-esque. One from left field there. Anyway, all right. Well, that's what we did this week for Film Club. Next week's pick is going to be what, Adam? I'm not going to be on next week, sadly, but hopefully we're going to be talking about Good Time. Good Time, yeah, excellent. Which is a new film by the Safdie brothers, another New York film that um, they've referenced a lot as being a, a sort of inspiration on this is uh, Dog Day Afternoon, right. Al Pacino joint, and okay. uh, Sidney Lumet directed. So yeah, we're, we're revisiting that. Hello, Sonny. Sonny, you're on the air. Would you mind answering a few questions for us? Yeah. Why are you doing this? Hello. See? No, I just saw myself. Uh, what? You, why am I doing it? Yes. Doing what? Robbing a bank. Oh. Uh, what? I, I don't know what you mean by that. I, I'm robbing a bank because they got money here. That's why I'm robbing it. No, no. What I mean is, why do you feel you have to steal for money? 
Couldn't you get a job? Uh, no. Go on what? You know, you know, you gotta get if you if you want a job, you gotta be a member of a union. See, and if you're not, if you've got no uh, union card, you don't get a job. What about non-union occupations? What's wrong with this guy? What do you mean non-union? Like what? A bank teller? You know how much a bank teller makes a week? Not much. Not much. 115 to start, right? Now you're gonna live on that. I got a wife and a couple of kids. How am I gonna live on that? Uh, what do you make a week? I'm here to talk to you, Sonny. Uh, no, well, I'm, talk to I'm talking to you. We're entertainment, right? What do you, what do you, what do you got for us? Well, what do you want to get for it? Do you expect to be paid because no, of appearing? No, I don't want to be paid. I don't need to be paid. Look, I'm here with my partner and nine other people. See, we're dying. You know, you're going to see our brains on a sidewalk. They're going to spill our guts out. Now, you're going to show that on television? Have all your housewives look at that instead of as the world turns? I mean, what do you got for me? I want something for that. Sonny. Yeah. You could give up. So Dog Day Afternoon is your homework for next week when we will be reviewing the extremely good Good Time. And uh, we're not sure what our second film is going to be yeah, either. There's a little thing called Justice League coming out. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm not sure whether... It's either that or Mudbound. Yeah. Yeah, which might be the you know artistic choice. Mudbound. Yeah, have you seen Mudbound? I have Sophie? seen Mudbound. Is it big thumbs up? I recommend it, yes. Okay. Have you seen Good Time? I have, yes. And which is better? For my money, Mudbound. Really? Then it yes. must be pretty good. Anyway, do get watching Dog Day Afternoon and let us know your thoughts at the usual addresses which remain LWLies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com is the email address, or at the Little White Lies website. Click on the podcast link and there'll be a little page where you can leave your comments. Anything else you want to add, Sophie? May I give a little plug? Please. Oh, actually, two little plugs. So I had the pleasure of interviewing Sean Baker and that's going to be up on the Little White Lies website and he is a very idealistic kind of guy. So if you like these Paddington types, he's kind of a filmmaker Paddington guy and there's another thing we want to plug, isn't there Adam? Yeah, actually just before that, the, yeah, the Sean Baker interview talks a lot as well about the casting of this film and who is it he saw on Instagram was like... Yeah, Bria Vignate who plays the controversial the mother, mother. Hallie She's an Instagram star that he reached out to. Yeah, um, which is a fascinating way of casting a film like this, I mm. think. But the other thing is that our, our new print edition is out, or will be hopefully by the time you're listening to this. And we've got Martin McDonagh's Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri well on the said. cover. Mm. What a is, wonderful film that which is. Which is an absolute Which also features, by the way, Caleb Landry-Jones, who pops up in The Florida Project. Excellent. For now, many, many thanks to Sophie Monks-Kaufman and to Adam Woodward. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This was a Seven Digital production. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.